Now, when we come to chapter 28, we come to another one of these remarkable chapters. And here you have the law of offerings. In fact, in both the 28th and 29th chapters. And this is such a wonderful thing that is said here that I wouldn't want you to miss it for anything in the world. We have here actually the preciousness of Christ that's brought to our uh, attention. In fact, the abiding preciousness of Christ. Here you have the order of the offerings. Seems quite uninteresting. But let me read. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, My offering and my bread for my sacrifice made by fire for a sweet savor unto me shall ye observe to offer unto me in their due season. Now, did you notice the emphasis, and I tried to put it in the reading, my offering, my bread, my sacrifice unto me, to offer unto me, and it's a sweet savor. Now, you will recall there were two kinds of offerings. We saw that in the book of Leviticus at the very beginning of the five offerings, Three of them were sweet savor offerings. Two of them were non-sweet savor offerings. The sweet savor offerings speak of the person of Christ. The non-sweet savor offerings speak of the work of Christ in redemption for you and me. Actually, here, this is the sweet savor offering he's talking about. And God calls them my offerings. And what we have here. It's not what Christ has done for us, and it's not our thoughts of him, but it's what God thinks of him. Now, let me read on, and you'll see what I mean by the details that are given here. Thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire, which ye shall offer unto the Lord, two lambs of the first year without spot day by day for a continual burnt offering." You see, that burnt offering speaks of Christ, who he is. It all ascended to him. And that is the aspect of this sacrifice that is all important. Now, again, all of this points to Christ, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, when we come to the 29th chapter, you'll find the details are given here about a sin offering. And these are the sacrifices that have to do with the work of Christ for us on the cross. Now, we've been over all of this ground before with much detail when we were in Leviticus. And so we want to take advantage of covering a great deal of ground here because we have coming up next the Gospel of John. And we want to give all the time we possibly can to that. Now, all of this has been fulfilled in Christ. And here in this offering, that is, there were two of them, the sin offering and the trespass offering, we find that especially on the great day of atonement, it was the one holy day, one of the days that God gave to these people, and he gave several of these wonderful holy days. Every one of them was to be a time of rejoicing, none of them was to be a time of mourning except one, and that was the great day of atonement. And why? 
because that's the day that the sin offering is made. And the emphasis is put, actually, on the sin offering for that day. And all of these wonderful, high, holy days, the feast days. You see, God wanted His people to come before Him with joy. And every one of them was that type of a feast, with the exception of the great day of atonement. And he said, on that day, ye shall afflict your souls, and an offering made by fire unto God. And that's back in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. But over here in the 29th chapter of Numbers, verse 7, again he repeats this. He says, and ye shall have on the tenth day of the seventh month a holy convocation, and ye shall afflict your souls, and ye shall not do any work therein. But ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord for a sweet savor, one young bullock, one ram, and seven lambs of the first year, they shall be unto you without blemish. But then you'll notice that there is to be, verse 11, one kid of the goats for a sin offering, beside the sin offering of atonement. In other words, this day reminds them that they're sinners. And on that day of the sacrifice was made for sins of ignorance. That means, friends, you're a sinner even if you don't know it. You're a sinner. And you and I paid close attention to the Word of God. We'd find out that we're sinners. We need a Savior. And that is the emphasis on this day. Sins of ignorance. You're a sinner whether you know it or not. And you need a sacrifice. You need Christ. You need a Savior that died for you and paid the penalty of your sins. But why mourn? Well, friends, sin is what's brought sorrow into this world. It's what brought the teardrop and the broken heart. Sin brought that into the world. God hates it, and I'm glad he hates it. And he's moving forward today undeviatingly, unhesitatingly, uncompromisingly against sin, and he intends to drive it out of his universe because God will not compromise with it at all. He'll not accept the white flag of truce. He intends to eliminate it, and I'm thankful for that. And it's sin that has robbed you and me of our relationship to God, our fellowship with him, and therefore it's an occasion for mourning. It is occasion. When was the last time? that you heard anybody weep over their sins. When's the last time that you've wept over your sins? Have you been before God, my friend, and wept over your sins because of the failure in your life and because of the fact that you're far from Him and your coldness and indifference? My, how we need to confess that to Him today. And I mean with genuine tears that this thing has separated us from God. God says it's not because God is high and we are low, or He's great and we're small, and He's infinite and we're finite, we're separated from. He says, your sins have separated you from me. And that's occasion for weeping. My, as you look back over your life, and I want to be very frank with you. You see, now I've retired as a pastor of a church. I was ordained to the ministry in about 1932, I guess it was. Now, that's a long time to be an active pastor. 
And I want to say this, not in the spirit of boasting, because I don't feel that way about it, but I look back on every pastor that I've had as a successful pastor as the world or as the church judges those things. There's always been an increase in attendance, increase in interest. People have been saved. Young people's work has always thrived and grown. Well, somebody says, then that's something that causes you to rejoice. Let me make a confession to you. I don't rejoice. I look back and I see my failure, and I see it in a very glaring way. Don't misunderstand. I never went out and shot anybody, and I'm not guilty of committing adultery. I did not commit any of these sins. But I fail my Savior so many times and in so many ways, and I confess that to him. I have been before him, and when I think of my life, of how I let these things come in and separate me in times when I needed that fellowship and wanted that fellowship, but I'd let these things come in. My friends, the occasion even to this day of mourning, for weeping, if you please. My, I tell you today, friends, our hearts ought to be moved. And this is what this passage of Scripture teaches us. My, these are two wonderful chapters, 28 and 29. All of the details speak of our Savior and how wonderful He is. He was a sweet savor offering. That's who He is. But He's the non-sweet savor offering. That's what He did. He was made sin for us who knew no sin. But I did, and I'm the sinner. He died in my stead that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And he took my place down here, and he's given me his place up there. And I say this reverently, but I want to say it, that if you are saved today, friends, you have as much right in heaven as Christ has. Did you know that? You have his right to be there. And if you don't have his right, you've got no business there. I have some bad news for you. You won't be there because you can only stand in him accepted in the Beloved. That's the way God receives us. And if you're in Him, you just don't improve on that at all. How wonderful this is. Now, I come to chapter 30 as we're moving along. And we have here, very candidly, the law of vows in chapter 30. And they speak particularly as they refer to women. Now, we've seen that women have been given their rights. They can inherit. Women also have responsibilities. And we called attention in Leviticus. There's a whole chapter there on vows and the importance that God attaches to vows. And he tells the child of God that you better be careful if you're going to make a vow to God. He'll hold you to it. And don't make one foolishly. I think that there's a grave danger today and people promising the Lord too much. As I got to the end of my ministry, I became very reluctant to ask people to take any kind of a vow before God except to accept Christ as Savior. Why? Because I've seen multitudes come to an altar to dedicate their lives. And then, friends, before the week was gone, I've seen the lives of some of those individuals. And I'll be honest with you, the vow was broken. And God holds us to vows. Now, he didn't ask us to make some of them we make, but if you're going to make one to God, 
And remember, do business with him, because he'll hold you to it. Now, let me read this here, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 30. And Moses spoke unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Now, notice this. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Now, that is very important, and it's very important for Christians today. After all, what does Romans mean? What does Paul mean in Romans when he says that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you believe on him? Why, with your heart. What happens? Well, uh, confession is made by the mouth. And that's been a passage of Scripture that I think has been greatly abused a great deal today. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. And that's your vow. That's your statement of faith. And shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. The point of it is... It's not just what the mouth says, it's what the heart believes, friends. And he says they must be brought into agreement. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Now, you don't believe with your mouth. You say it with your mouth. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So, don't say it with your mouth until your heart is singing a duet with you. The mouth and the heart ought to have a duet. And they ought to be singing the same tune. That's exactly what he means about this matter of vows. Now, the question is, what about women that make a vow? Listen to this. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord, and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow, and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand. And every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. In other words, if a woman makes a vow while she's still single in the home, the father can be held responsible for her, you see. Now, if he keeps quiet when he hears her make the vow, then that vow that she made is going to stand. Now, the father, though, can say, wait just a minute. She's bought this dress, and she's not able to pay for it, and I don't intend to pay for it. Then he's protected in that matter. Now, suppose the woman is a married woman. Well, verse 6, And if she had at all a husband, when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it, and he held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vows shall stand, and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. So that if the husband keeps quiet and says nothing when she buys an expensive dress, but if the husband at that time says, No, sir, I'll not pay for it, then he's not obligated, and that vow will not stand. But you see, the vow the woman made, either the father or the husband, is held to it. But the husband can disallow it as well as the father. I think that here is a great step that is made that actually hasn't been made today. You know, a woman today and many of them that 
are gold diggers. They meet a man, and they marry him for money. That's true today, especially a young woman marrying an older man. She marries him for his money. And after she's got his name, she can pretty well go to court and get practically everything that he has. And I've seen that happen several times. I saw a Christian man, his wife died, and he got very lonely, and he married this woman, and she was really after his money, and he was a man of means. And he was a member of the church, and he had left money to certain Christian organizations, to several mission boards. Why, do you know that wife came in there and absolutely was able to break the will? And none of these organizations, and they were good organizations, were able to get a dime. Now, I personally think that that's entirely wrong today. And God, you see, made a rule that the husband could disallow it, and also the father could disallow it. And it would be impossible for a wife to sue a rich man and get everything he's got. He just wouldn't stand, unless he himself permitted it, of course. But many of them haven't been able to protect themselves at all. I've had in several cases where a man has told me, well, this woman married me for my money. She got everything that I had. Well, that's the foolishness of mankind, you see. Somebody said God made women beautiful and dumb. He made them beautiful so men would marry them and made them dumb so they'd marry the men. But they're not so dumb, friends. Some of them are very smart in this type of thing. Now, God says in verse 9, "...but every vow of a widow..." And of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. In other words, if she's a widow, she stands on her own two feet, and the vow that she makes will stand. It's quite interesting, these vows, how important they are to God. He wants his people always to be as good as their word because of the fact that Christ took an oath Again and again, you find that in Scripture, that God took an oath. He took an oath to David, and God intends to make that good. Now, God made a contract, an oath, you will recall, to Abraham. And we find also the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, that's the Word of God. His Word stands, friends. He said he'd save you if you'd trust Christ. That dear little Scotch woman who told her unbelieving son on the way to college, when he said, Why, your soul don't amount to very much. Even if you lost it, you wouldn't lose much. And she thought it over and said, I agree with you. I wouldn't lose much. But if I lost my soul, then God would lose more than I would. And he wanted to know how that could be. He says, You admit that I'd only lose my soul. It doesn't amount to much. But if I do lose my soul, God will lose his reputation. Because he said he'd save me. And I trusted him. And I say, God will stand by his word. His oath is good. He doesn't have to take an oath. All he has to do is to say it, and it is true. And he wants those who represent him down here to be that kind of a people. Those who, when they make an oath, they stand by it. And that is the thing that should represent the Christian in this world. Now, friends, as we come to this 31st chapter of the book of Numbers, we are dealing with some of the things that pertain to the new generation 
that have come through the wilderness. Many of them, when they started out, were just little fellows. And I mean by that, they were grade school, if you please. Many of them teenagers. And some of them weren't even born. And now the new generation, and beginning of chapter 26 through the rest of the book, we've been talking about this new generation that God's preparing now to enter into the promised land. Now, as you come to chapter 31, we find here that Midian that dwelt way out in the wilderness. This is where Moses had gone, you will recall. He, in fact, he married a Midianite, and it was way out in the wilderness. And God gives them a victory now over Midian. Midian was an enemy, and Midian represents, I think, the world out in the wilderness. God calls here for a separation from the world. And that separation from the world is a spiritual separation for the child of God today. I think that a great problem with the children of Israel was that God got them out of Egypt in one night. It took him 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And that is the problem of worldliness today. It's not that we're in the world. It's not where you go today. And maybe not so much what you do, although these things are indicative of what's on the inside. But it's a question where the world's in your heart and in your life. Now, will you notice God tells them that they are to deal very harshly with the Midianites. Verse 2, "...avenge the children of Israel of the Midianites. Afterward shalt thou be gathered unto thy people." That is for this man Moses that God is speaking to now that he's to avenge them. They had, you will remember, made war against God's people, been unlovely to them in the wilderness. Now in verse 6, And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand of every tribe. That means there were 12,000 in all. Them and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war, with the holy instruments and the trumpets to blow in his hand. The furniture in the tabernacle was to go, the holy instruments. This means that there is a spiritual warfare today. And the only way that you and I can overcome is through Christ, of course. And we find that among the Midianites that were slain, verse 8, they slew the kings of Midian. And then we notice of the five kings that are mentioned here, Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. We have here then the death of Balaam. Now you have here in this chapter God giving them a victory over the Midianites, and also you see a judgment on the Gentiles here prior to their entering into the land. That is the thing that will consummate the age before Christ comes is the fact that these people who seem to be having such great problems today will be put in the land and they will have peace when they enter the land. Now, there is a great deal said in this chapter about that, but the great lesson of this chapter is that this calls for a spiritual separation from the world. It's not where you walk, it's how you walk. That's the important thing. 
that you walk in the light today of the Word of God, walk in fellowship with Him. That's the important thing for the child of God. Now in chapter 32, we have here the half-hearted tribes. You have Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They asked for land on the wrong side of Jordan, by the way. The tribes of Reuben and Gad, they asked for territory here on the wrong side of Jordan. Now let me read chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. I will just get into this chapter also. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. When they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest, unto the princess of the congregation, saying, and they go on to say that they wanted the land over there, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. They ask for the land over there. Now, the thing that we need to note here is that the river Jordan doesn't speak of death. When we get the book of Joshua, we'll see that it teaches for us today how we pass over into Canaan. In other words, there are two places for the child of God to live today. You can live in the wilderness and be a regular beggar, just a hippie in the wilderness of the world. And there are many spiritual beggars in the world today. Or you can enter into the place of spiritual blessings, where we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. That's the spiritual Canaan today. Now, how do you cross over? Well, when we see the children of Israel crossing over, we find that there's two great lessons there. The stones that were put in Jordan speak of the death of Christ. The stones that were taken out of the river Jordan speak of the resurrection of Christ. They got the land by the death and resurrection of Christ. And you and I get these spiritual blessings the same way, that we're to know that we've been buried with Him and raised with Him. We are to reckon that we're joined to Him. We're to yield to Him on that kind of a basis. And it's on that that you and I today can appropriate the spiritual blessings that are ours. So these two tribes, they didn't have to cross the Jordan River. They got their land on the wrong side. Now, somebody says, well, did it ever work out to their disadvantage? Yes. You remember the Lord Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee over to the other side to the land of what? The Gadarenes. Who were the Gadarenes? They were the tribe of Gad. They were on the wrong side of Jordan. This is something for us to note, by the way. They got in the pig business over there. They got into difficulty, and that always happens to the child of God. Now we have here in chapter 32, and I'm dropping down to verse 23 to call attention to a statement in Scripture that is so misunderstood, misinterpreted today. I'm reading it now. But if ye will not do so, behold, ye've sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Now, the ordinary way that that is interpreted is your sin will be found out. That is, 
If you sin, somebody's going to find out about it. You won't get by with it. That actually is not what it says at all. And I think a great many sinners get by with it today. But they don't really get by with it because your sin will find you out. There has to come that time when chickens come home to roost, and that whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Your sin will find you out. And I don't care who you are or where you are, how you are, when you are. Your sin will find you out. Chickens will come home to roost. And in the way you sin, that's the way it's going to come home to you sometime. That's the meaning of that particular statement that is ordinarily turned around. Now, we're going to reserve for the book of Joshua the fact of the great teaching of crossing the Jordan River and that which Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh really missed by the fact they didn't cross over into the land. Now, when we come to chapter 33 here, we have the log of the 40 years they're wandering in the wilderness. Now, we said before that there actually was no record of their happenings in the 40 years. All that you have here is just the log of their journeys. Nothing is said about what took place. Let me just drop down into this chapter and just read to you one or two verses, and you can see how monotonous it is, by the way. Verse 27, "...they departed from Tehath and pitched at Terah, and they removed from Terah and pitched in Mithkah." Now, friends, that's not very exciting reading. Immediately, you would say, well, what happened there? It's just like you go over to visit a friend of yours that's been away on a trip. And you say to him, tell me about your trip. And he's been, say, to Europe. And he'd say, well, we went to Rome, then we went to Milan, uh, then we went to Florence, and then we went up into Switzerland, and we went to Lucerne, and we went to Zurich, and we went to Geneva, and then we went over in Germany, and we went to Frankfurt, and on and on like that. You'd like to know what they did at each place. What kind of experiences did they have? What did they see? Well, all we had were just a few incidents that were recorded of the 40 years. But here the log is given. And I just have to say to you that it's pretty monotonous. If you want to know my opinion, I consider chapter 33 pretty boring reading. I've never found it exciting at all. But just as all these chapters have a great spiritual lesson, and this one has, I think, one of the most wonderful spiritual lessons that we've had. Did you notice that for you and me, this is like reading a road map? It's not interesting. But why did God record it? Because God marks every step that these people took. Every step is recorded. Every step of the way. In other words, he was with them every step of the way that they went. He said he'd never leave them nor forsake them, that he would be with them through the wilderness march, and he was with them. Now, we sing a song today, and candidly, I don't like it. 
I think that it expresses just about the opposite viewpoint that it should. We sing, I'll go with him all the way. Well, I notice a lot of times as when I was pastor, I'd look out sometimes Sunday morning and see a congregation singing lustily. I'll go with him all the way. And you wonder why they didn't come to church Sunday night. And where were they at the midweek service? They were willing to go with him all the way, provided it wasn't coming back to church. And you wonder really how far they're willing to go with him. I don't know about you, but that's one song you can take out of the songbook. As far as I'm concerned, I'll go with him all the way. Well, I must confess, I've fallen down time and time again, and I haven't been able to sing it, and I couldn't sing it, of course, but I haven't been able to say it. But I'd like to turn it around and say it as it should be. He'll go with me all the way. He'll go with me all the way. And here is a log of their journeys. Everywhere they went, every time they camped, every place, he was with them. And frankly, they weren't going with him. They were away from him a great deal of the time. But he never did leave them, nor did he forsake them. Friends, this is one of the great truths that we have in the Word of God. He'll go with me all the way. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And he's told his own in the upper room, I'll not leave you orphans. I'm coming to you. How? By sending the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is indwelling every believer. And if you're a child of God, you couldn't get away from him. He wouldn't let you at all. He'll go with me all the way. But what about you and what about me? I can't speak for you, but I find out I'm not very good at going with him all the way. I'm constantly stumbling and falling down, and I find it very difficult at times to say, even for one short period of time, I've been going with him all the way. But thank God, He's been going with me all the way. Now, we come in this chapter here to verse 51, and here is something that a great many people raise questions about, especially the skeptic today. Verse 51 reads, "...speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places, and ye shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. Now, somebody's going to say, well, that's very cruel, I think, for the Lord to tell these people who we've seen have been rather disobedient and put them in the land. And there were such lovely people living in that land. They were nice, white neighbors, and they were very sweet folk. And why in the world would the Lord want to put them out of the land? Well, friends, that's the way the liberals been talking for years. And he gets all wrought up that the Lord put them out of the land. And the chances are every liberal today is living on a piece of ground that once belonged to the Indians. 
And when the liberals start giving back their property to the Indians, then I'm going to listen to them when they talk about the Old Testament. Now, will you look at this with me for just a moment? After all, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and those that dwell therein. This is his earth, and here are a group of people that are in the land, and what were they told to destroy? Their pictures. What kind of pictures? pictures of idols. The archaeologist has dug up all of this today, and their molten images, and they're to destroy their high places. That was the place of pagan and heathen worship. And the vilest practices took place in these high places. It would be something that could correspond today to what's happening in this permissive society. It reveals a very low spiritual state, and that they were far from the living and true God. They were idolatrous. Now, added to that, they know today that these people in that land, the Canaanites, were absolutely eaten up with venereal disease. Now, today, we hear that there's more or less of an epidemic of venereal disease, and it is a plague, and it's a grave danger. It does great injury to the human race. Now, that land is right at the crossroads of the world. It's one of the most sensitive spots that there is. It's been that in our day. It always has been that. I think it always will be that. However, someday there'll be peace on the earth. But this land here is a very strategic land, and the armies of the world have marched through there, and they had contact with peoples everywhere. Believe me, they were disseminating and scattering this loathsome disease, diseases everywhere. Now, God is putting out a tenant who doesn't pay rent, and they're destroying his property, and they're hurting the rest of mankind. Now, don't come and tell me today, friends, God didn't have the right to do that, and for the sake of oncoming generations... What he did was actually an act of mercy. It was for the sake of the future. The same reason the flood came. God was thinking of the future. It's so easy to criticize today without realizing what all is involved. Now, when we get to chapter 34 here, this is something that will come up before us later. But we have given to us here the fact that the land was given to this nation, but also to each tribe, God gave a particular section of that land. And we also know that each family and each tribe, God gave them a certain portion of the land. Now, that is the way the land was divided, and he put borders around it so that there'd be no way of misunderstanding what it was God gave to them specifically this land. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto you, When ye come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall unto you for an inheritance, even the land of Canaan with the coasts thereof. And then he says, Then your south quarter shall be from the wilderness of Zen. And again, This would be like a geographer's report here of how the borders of the land was laid out.
Now in chapter 35, we have already seen that the Lord did not give to the tribe of Levi any part of the land, but gave them certain cities to dwell in that were in all the tribes. Fact of the matter is, the Levites had three cities on the east side of Jordan and three on the west side of Jordan. And these were called cities of refuge. Verse 6, And among the cities which ye shall give unto the Levites, there shall be six cities for refuge, which ye shall appoint for the manslayer, that he may flee thither, and to them ye shall add forty in two cities. We've already seen something about what a city of refuge was. It was for a man to flee to that he might not be slain by mob action or by some zealous person or some relative that's wrought up emotionally at the time and that he might have an opportunity to have a fair trial. The cities of refuge, six of them, but God gave to these people, verse 7, so all the cities which ye shall give to the Levites shall be forty, and eight cities, them shall ye give with their suburban areas. Now, these cities are not what you and I think of as cities. Some of them are very small indeed. Now, that brings us to the 36th chapter of the book of Numbers in the last chapter. Now, this is a chapter that speaks of the inheritance. And the land was to pass from father to son, and also here there is to be to the daughters if there are no sons. And then there's the year of jubilee. No man, you see, could lose his property permanently. Every 50 years, the trumpet of jubilee was sounded, and all property that had been mortgaged reverted back to the original family that God gave it to. It's a most marvelous arrangement that God made for his people. It's the way he protected them. Verse 13, and this is the last verse. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses under the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. Then this ends the public ministry of Moses. Now in Deuteronomy, we'll have the private ministry of Moses, and it's a very wonderful book, as we shall see later on. But now we go next time to the Gospel of John. Be with us as we enter this very wonderful gospel.